Well, good morning. It's always, as I say every time, it is always a pleasure to be here and to open God's Word with you. If we haven't met, if you're new here, my name is Ty and I'm the assistant to the pastor here. And I have this great honor of opening the Word and preaching this morning. So, I'll jump right in. The end of the world. It is a huge topic, and it's one of the top subgenres today, as we see in many shows and video games and movies. Zombie apocalypses are very, very popular nowadays in a world that has been left desolate because of a zombie virus outbreak. And many people have said that this coronavirus was the worst zombie outbreak they've ever seen. You expect better. But movies and TV shows such as The Walking Dead, Dawn of the Dead, 28 Days Later, Resident Evil, and so on, continue to capture the imagination and the attention of millions of people. Or maybe not zombies, maybe aliens. Those have been a huge topic in today's news and world, but also dystopian novels and movies such as the Divergent series or the Hunger Games or the Maze Runner have raked in millions upon millions of dollars in books sold and movies watched. But they all paint the picture of what the end of the world might look like. This fascination goes beyond the horror genre and young adult series and is found right in reality as well. Who remembers here the Y2K excitement a number of years ago? Yes, the computer systems were all going to fail. Every nuclear missile was going to launch at midnight between 1999 and 2000. I think I was in second grade or something for that, so I don't really remember any fear or anxiety over it. But I do remember December 21st, 2012. That was a big one for my generation because that was the year that the Mayan calendar was going to end and thus bring with it the end of the world. On top of that, 2012, somebody pointed out, was also the Chinese year of the dragon, which represents Satan. And so, of course, this was going to be the end, yet here we are. So how about the religious predictions? The Mormon church, officials, the official name of the Mormon church is the latter Day Saints, the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. It is an end-times cult. Jehovah's Witnesses gained their popularity with end-of-the-world predictions, uh, predicting starting in 1878 was an end-of-the-world prediction, 1881, 1914, 1918, 1925, and then 1975, when tens of thousands and maybe even millions, we're not too sure, left the entire Jehovah's Witness movement because of their track record of failed prophecies. Now, in our own evangelical circles, we also have some of these end times predictions. We think of the secret rapture, this idea that was made popular by the Left Behind books that uh, um, people were just going to be taken out of the world before the Great Tribulation came. People keep up with events in the Middle East and in Israel to see how close we are to this secret rapture. And they, they predict, you know, they have the red heifer and, and the temple's going to be rebuilt. And they keep predicting these things, and yet the, the bar keeps getting pushed back. But every time somebody is certain that the end of the world is coming, it doesn't. So here's, here's a question. Should we concern ourselves with the end times? 
I think the answer is yes. Why? Because there are several examples in Scripture where we are given glimpses into the last days. But here's another question. Should we try and track and predict the exact moment, the exact day when the end is going to come? And I don't think so. My reasoning is that I think Scripture makes it very clear that no one can know the exact day or the hour. But we should know, as we will see in just a moment, that this day and hour is approaching, and we should be prepared for it. So let's pray, and then we will begin to unpack this text as we move along. So Father, we do come to you as fallible beings, as fallen beings, dependent upon you and your grace. We trust in your word that it gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And I ask that you would bless this time, that you would keep me from error, that our ears would be open to what you have for us, that you would get me out of the way so that Christ would shine ever brighter. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So we continue our series in 1 John, and we looked last week at the futility of loving the world. Don't love the world nor the things of the world. Why? Well, because the world is passing away. The Greek word used here is parago, to pass by or to pass away. The same word is used back in verse 8 of chapter 2 of the darkness that is passing away. It's used in the Gospels of Jesus going from one place to another. It's a progressive thing. And from this passing away of the world, John tells us that it is indeed the last hour. Verse 18, as we just heard, children, it is the last hour. And this is a pretty general statement if you think about it. And I think the natural question to ask of anyone who says it is the last hour would be, well, how do you know? How do you know that the end is near? Well, John tells us. He says, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. We have a reasoning here. So John kind of lays it out. In the last hour, Antichrist will come. Now, there are many Antichrists. Therefore, Antichrists have come, thus showing it is the last hour. And throughout the passage, John continues to make this case that it is indeed the last hour. There are three main things we will be looking at this morning in relation to this last hour and the last days, and those three things are Antichrist, apostasy, and anointing. So we'll start with Antichrist. It appears to be a knowledge that has been going around at the time of John that Antichrist is coming. Verse 18, again, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming. John could be referring here to the writings of Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2. Paul writes, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. 
The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So they knew this was going to happen. And John writes, and he may be reflecting back to Jesus' his own words from Matthew 24. This is the famous Olivet Discourse where he says in verse 5, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And again in verses 11 and 12, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. And of course, we have already talked about this, how we are to love one another. That is a command that we have been given from Scripture, to love one another, to love the brethren, to stand against this time of hate. But then the question comes up, was this a future person or people during the time of John, or is it a future person or people for us today? And the answer to that question is yes. There were obvious antichrists when John was writing. He says, so now many antichrists have come. But if we look ahead to chapter 4, verse 3, we read, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is in the world today. So if one of the main signs that we are in the last hour is antichrist and the last hour seems to be this time between the first and second coming of christ then the spirit of antichrist will continue all up to the second coming of christ and john identifies who antichrist is or at least the spirit of antichrist and that's in verse 22 and he says who is the liar but he who denies that jesus is of the christ this is the antichrist he who denies the father and the Son. R.C. Sproul writes that the denial in view here is docetism. This heresy said that Christ only appeared to be a human being and never actually took our flesh. So when we consider this view, Christ was not like us. He was a facade, one who could not truly sympathize with us as the book of Hebrews clearly tells us he did. Christ only appeared to suffer and die on the cross. And if that is the case, we are still in our sins. There is no hope. For the appearance of sacrifice cannot satisfy the wrath of God. A right view of Christ is absolutely essential to us as Christians. This is something that is being pushed aside today. What we believe about Christ matters. Because if we get Christ wrong... John is making it clear here that it is the spirit of Antichrist. And this is why, and among many other reasons, we cannot stand side by side with people who are a part of the Latter-day Saints or Jehovah's Witness movement. They reject the Son and the Father. They do not possess the Son or the Father. They twist Scripture to make them say what they want it to say. They teach us a Jesus that cannot actually save. And there are, and there are some of the people Jesus talks about here who come as false prophets, who proclaim different Christs. Do not follow them. Do not go after them. 
In fact, Paul says that if anyone comes, whether it be an angel from heaven and preaches a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you, let him be anathema. And that's exactly what happened in Mormonism. You had an angel from heaven. It wasn't from heaven, but you had an angel from heaven come and preach a different gospel. And Paul says, anathematize. Lawlessness and Antichrist were indeed a reality when these epistles and gospels were being written. The original audience knew this. Jesus, Paul, and John all warned their readers and hearers of this. The sign of the last day is also false teaching. So we are instructed to know our Bibles. Church, know your Bible. Be able to know and distinguish what is true and what is not. Discern truth, especially in a world where there is no such thing as absolute truth, which is an absolute in and of itself. It is crucial that a Christian know God's truth. It's not about your truth. It's not about my truth. It's not about how we understand something, but what did God intend to communicate to us? What is true. And we need to be firm and grounded so we don't find ourselves in this next category that we're going to look at, which is apostasy. Verse 19 in our text, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Very humbling and convicting verse. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 through 4, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. So John points out that many of those who are Antichrist will come from within the church. And I've talked a bit about this in the past, of people who profess to be Christians and then leaving the faith. Profession of faith and possession of faith are two different things. And teaching doctrine that goes against Christian orthodoxy. And this movement has become very, very popular today. There's nothing new, but deconstructionism is something that, if you're familiar with kind of the evangelical world around us, you will hear this term, deconstruction. Very common among college-aged people. If church is not the priority to kids or Sunday um, for the family to come to church, it won't be a priority later on in life for kids. If kids don't sit in the main service but instead go off to some other activity, they're not learning how to be in church. And I'm not talking about babies or anything like that. But to, to a great thing is to see kids in church, to learn how to worship, to learn how to sit, and to learn how to behave when they are in church. If family worship isn't being done in the home, the kids don't see the importance of personal Bible study and personal growth. If kids aren't being challenged and trained and examined, their faith is not their own, but just something they believe because their parents believed it. Now, we were told that Timothy was instructed in the Scriptures by his mother and his grandmother. and they were, This was a family legacy. But men, husbands, and fathers, 
This responsibility falls on you to lead your families, to know the word of God, to love the word, to lead in love and to lead in gentleness, to love God first above all, and then to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, and to train up and disciple and discipline your children, to set the example for them. To make sure that when you do send them off into the world, you can do it with confidence because you have laid that foundation and that importance in their life for they stand upon Christ and not upon their own human knowledge or wisdom, but it's secure in Christ and his word. But we do see this reality of even people who are raised in good Christian homes falling away. And it is a tragic reality, and it's something that we do need to address It's a devastating reality, but it is a reality nonetheless. I'll use two examples of this from the public eye in in churches. Uh, One, Abraham Piper, son of Dr. John Piper, whose TikTok account has 1.7 million followers, and the content is focused on dismantling the faith he was brought up in, deconstructing that faith using past trauma from the church to show that the church is false, using his platform to speak against the God and the God of his father and against his father himself. The second example is a more recent one, though it's been going on for a little while, uh, is from North Point Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And I only bring these up because they are in the public eye right now and are being looked at. But in just the last few years... Um, we have Pastor Andy Stanley, who is the son of Charles Stanley. Um, Stanley has begun, begun his own deconstruction and leading his church in deconstruction. He says this, The Christian faith doesn't rise and fall on the accuracy of 66 documents, ancient documents. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. To which many of us might respond, well, how do we know who Jesus is? if not for the scriptures, if not for these 66 ancient uh, documents. But just in recent weeks, Andy has moved in the direction of affirming homosexuality in the church by saying that a gay person who serves after how the church has treated them for these years has more faith than even he does. This is nothing new. It may be new to us in some way. Maybe this is just the first time we're hearing about it. But John wrote about this back 2,000 years ago. John wrote about those things in, uh, in the church and the people leaving because of their antichrist ways. It's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. And I'm sure we all know someone who comes to mind when we read verse 19. And uh, for me, it's my brother. Uh, he made a profession of faith years ago, and then he, got, he even got baptized. It was not a genuine faith, though. It was not a true faith, and my brother has completely walked away. He doesn't believe in God or anything like that. But of course, we know God uses this apostasy to show who the true church is. They went out that it might become plain that they were not of us. This should tell us a couple of things, and the first thing is this, God is sovereign. Those who belong to Christ will be made known. They will hear his voice, and they will come to him. Some of the most comforting words in all of Scripture are found in John chapter 6, starting in verse 37, and it says this, 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will who, of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The church, not only do we have the promise that Christ will lose none, not one single person that the Father gives him, but we have the promise that Christ himself will raise up the elect on the last day. And so my question is, do we trust in God's election? Do we trust God in his grace and in his mercy and in his will? The second thing that this tells us is that those who do belong to God will not be away forever. They can stumble, they can fall, they can, they can even have a time of, we call it backsliding, but they will come back. If they had been of us, he says, they would have continued with us. Now this can happen in a number of different ways, and God works in whatever way he sees fit, but um, sometimes hitting an all-time low in life like the prodigal son who was thrown in with the pigs and he thinks, well, even my father's servants have it better than this. And Steve preached on this a few weeks ago. You know, I'm going to go back to my father and make myself as one of his hired servants. And how does the father react? But he calls in his son, not as a servant, but as his son. He calls him back. He is redeemed. But it took hitting a low place in life and being scum of the earth for him to have that realization. It could happen through church discipline. Um, I've heard people say that church discipline is kind of mean and embarrassing because you could bring somebody up and you announce their sin to the whole congregation. But the point of church discipline is not to, not to embarrass somebody. The point of church discipline is to bring somebody back. It's to show love towards somebody, saying that we, we don't want you to continue in this sin. We want you back We want you in the fold. So church discipline is necessary for certain things like this. God can use whatever he wants to draw us to himself. Trust God. Trust his timing, his will, and his purposes. So now we come to the third point, anointing. Now these last two points were very much outward points. You have antichrists out there. You have apostasy going on out there. Now that we come to an inward look, we have verse 20 here. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. Now this word anointing kind of gets a bad rap because of how it's used within the hyper-charismatic movement. And movements like like that, uh, an anointing is a very special thing. That it's, it's not given to everybody, but it, it, it comes to somebody who maybe has the gift of prophecy. Or usually people who, who speak in tongues will have this kind of anointing. They'll say it's an anointing from God. They have a special anointing. But during uh, John MacArthur's Strange Fire Conference a number of years ago, During the question and answer session, a clip was shown of a group doing what they called the holy hokey pokey. 
And while a guy, the crowd is moving and they're shouting, put your left foot in, put your left foot, all, I use my right foot, but you can't see that. So, um, But he's, he's, he's leading them in this crazy thing while this guy on stage is moving around shouting, healing, healing, holy, holy, release your glory, release your glory. And it's just this, this, this mad frenzy of emotions. And then he's anointing people. He's flicking oil out into the crowd, anointing everybody who's there. And the anointing is usually associated in movements like this with how somebody feels or how they get caught up in the emotion of a moment. And one of the panel speakers, who's a guy named Justin Peters, makes it very clear that if you are a Christian, you are anointed. It's not a feeling. It's not getting caught up in an emotional experience, but it is a reality for the Christian. And he quotes this verse from 1 John. And John MacArthur then responds with some clarifying statements that the anointing is essentially the promise from the Holy Spirit for us to be able to understand the Word. We see this in verse 21. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. And then in verse 26 and 27, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. It all comes full circle. The anointing is what separates us from Antichrist. It separates us from the world. We are set apart, not because we're anything special, not because we've done anything to deserve it, but because the Holy Spirit lives within us by the grace of God who saved us. We don't have to guess about what the meaning of life is or what happens after we die or if there is such thing as absolute truth because the Holy Spirit enables us to understand these things that have been revealed to us in Scripture. This doesn't mean that antichrists or pagans can't understand some truth. A broken clock is said to be right twice a day. But we have the author of truth the one who made all things. We have been drawn to Christ, paid for by his blood. One commentator writes this. At verse 24, John again stresses that what you heard from the beginning, the true teaching about Jesus, must remain in you if you wish to remain in the Son and in the Father. The anointing also remains in you and teaches you about all things. Verse 27. Since both the anointing and what you heard are to remain in you, it is reasonable to suggest that the anointing and the tradition are synonymous in this context. John therefore associates the anointing with an ongoing catechetical process and using didasco three times in verse 27 to stress that those who already know the truth about Jesus need not learn anything more. We don't need to be taught from human wisdom, we have the Holy Spirit who illuminates truth to us. The Spirit teaches us the deep things of God. If you let what you have heard from the beginning remain in you, you have the Son and the Father. You are anointed. You are set apart. 
that whatever your days on this earth, whenever your days on this earth are done, either by your death or, the, or Christ's return, you will be with Christ forever. We do not share in the reality of antichrists and apostates. This same spirit that lives within us strengthens us. That even when we face trials, temptations, and tribulations, and belittling from the world, we can and will stand firm. We can take it. And this is one reason we are called to examine ourselves as Christians. Some people associate being a conservative or a patriot with being Christian. And while I believe that Christianity ultimately leads to many conservative and American values, such as the sanctity of life and the, the holiness of marriage between one man and one woman, uh, being pro-life, pro-family, love for country, and so on, none of these things make you a Christian. Bodhi Bauckham says, Hell will be filled with people who didn't smoke, didn't cuss, and may have even been baptized. Why? Because none of those things make somebody a Christian. The question in this morning is, do I hold, is not, do I hold the right values? The question is, do I possess Christ? Do I possess that anointing that John is talking about? Am I set apart? Am I made new? Am I born again? Do I have peace with God? Even when I watch my friends and family walk away and reject the God that I love, can I say the words, it is well with my soul because of what Christ has done for me? Because the time is coming, church. It's not a question of if, but a reality of now. We are in the last hour. And we can argue and discuss and debate all the details of the different views on the millennium and how to view the book of Revelation, but that's not the point that I'm making right now. The point is John says it is the last hour. Apostasy is happening all around us, and all we have to do is look around and we will see it. Antichrists are coming, but they are here now. Is Christ your Lord this morning? Is Christ your King? Is Christ your hope? And if he is not, you are dead in your sins. Repent. And run to Christ. Trust in Him alone for your salvation. Do not wait, for you do not know the day or the hour on which your Lord will come. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us the truth by your word. I am humbled by this text because I know that if it were not for your grace and mercy towards me, I would be no different from those who deny the Father and the Son. Instead of the Spirit of God, would, if not for the Spirit of God, there would only be the Spirit of Antichrist. Father, protect and guard your church. Give strength to those who need it. Humble hearts that are hard. Call your sheep to yourself. Give us a boldness to confront this world, knowing that no weapon formed against us shall remain, for the victory has already been won by you. Bless the rest of this time in worship. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.